Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're talking about democracy. We're talking about gratitude. And we also want to talk about matters beyond the presidential campaign, which, of course, is incredibly important. Is it more important than state legislative races around the country? If you could pick one thing to defeat Donald Trump or to have state legislatures across the country that would draw district lines to a portion of Congress that were pro-democracy, over the next 10 years, what would matter more? Pause for just a moment before you answer that question in your head. For everybody who's been shouting against Donald Trump, it might just seem like such an easy answer. If you think for a moment, it might land in the same place, but it might not be that easy an answer. What would be more important? Beating Donald Trump? Or maybe this, having your preferred candidate win the primary. Or having a different U.S. Senate that was willing to confirm pro-democracy judges. As we think about how to spend our time when we try to channel our rage into positive, forward-moving energy, as we look for places to channel that energy, where should we be looking? I want to say some thanks. We'll get back to some of our gratitudes. Thank you so much for calling in, folks. Also for tweeting in, Crash Modem tweeted in saying, I'm thankful we have the OJ verdict to point to every time the stable genius of supporters try to say that he was exonerated. It is true. If you The Ta-Nehisi Coates hypothesis or thesis statement, I'll say, is that this is Donald Trump is the first white president. Now, of course, we've had other presidents who were white, but he was the first president, according to Coates' argument, who was elected based on identified white identity in response to Barack Obama being the first black president. They now have their OJ verdict, as at least Crash Modem's case. Also want to shout out to Rita, a friend of the show and someone who's very kind to me as well, uh, who said, so did Senator Heidkamp. She voted not to confirm Kavanaugh and lost her seat. Another profile encouraged. Thank you, Rita, for reminding us about that one. Also, by the way, I did tweet, I even pinned the interview, long-form interview I did with Tom on the uh, personhood of corporations, the debate, the historical backdrop 
of corporate personhood. You can find the Democracy Nerd podcast on that. I did also, though, want to say shout out to Lisa Davis, who tweeted in yesterday. She listens to the show every day, but she can't call in because she's working. And first of all, thank you for listening. And I'm sorry you can't call in, but she said, could you please bring up that hashtag I left the GOP was trending right after and basically been trending since the witnesses vote, the vote to bar witnesses from what up to then could be considered by the Constitution a trial. Thank you, Lisa. And we now have brought up hashtag I left the GOP. Uh, Gabriella from Tahunga, California, yes, United States. How you doing? Yeah, is this Jefferson? It is. What a pleasure, sir. What a pleasure to you, or for me, <laughs> to talk to you. <laughs> I have so much gratitude and people and groups I want to thank. I won't go too long online, but I hosted for the first time a rally, and I couldn't have done it without Thank them. you for doing that. What was the rally focused around? There was Nationwide, which reject the cover-up. And this is the first time you've ever done it? You've never tried to organize a bunch of people to rally before? No. I'm usually active. I participate. I've done all the postcarding, the phone calling, the canvassing, but I hesitate to be the one that starts something. So what changed at this time, Gabriella? What made you decide this time I'm I'm going to take charge? I I just, like with the children that were, um, you know, kidnapped... I couldn't stand it, and this is the only way I can stay sane, and that's the message I want to get out, you know, even on the local level. Because we go to downtown Los Angeles, we've gone to Pasadena, who's very active. This time, I didn't want to do uh, downtown, I wanted to bring it local. And there's a, a regular Friday group since 2006 that meets on the same corner, they're peace activists. I was there four years ago for Bernie. And I said, well, let's give it a shot. People told me, well, you're not going to get anybody there. It's, you know, you, you need big numbers. I go, not necessarily. You just need to activate people. And, you know, to keep my hopes down or not to over hope, I was thinking, eh, five, six people at the most, that's yeah. fine. As long as it's not just me, we had over 66 people wow. on a very small corner Gabriella, in a very th- small suburb. Thank you so much for doing that, and thank you for telling us about it. It reminds me of a friend, the bus driver, the bus driver, the bus project in Oregon. Now it's it's grown up. It's now a national organization. It's called the Alliance for Youth Action. It's run by somebody from the Obama administration. It's a big deal. Its original bus driver is a guy named Ben Fain. He was a retired bus driver. He was the uncle of one of the volunteers in the project. Our idea was we were going to get a bus. We were going to take it to the closest legislative districts. We were going to knock on doors and talk to people and listen to people to try to turn the Oregon legislature, which had been double-barreled Republican for, I don't know, a decade and a half. And so we met Ben, who was just, you know, a retired bus driver because he was the uncle of a friend of ours. And Ben ended up being the bus driver. And we, you know, we ended up getting a bus, but we didn't have a driver. So we needed Ben. And he ended up driving us every weekend. And he ended up being... Part of our, we were young folks. He was, you know, a retired bus driver. He ended up being part of our family. We ended up, in fact, having a T-shirt with his face on. And we still call him and say happy birthday every year. What ended up happening later, though, after, you know, I think it was, I guess I was in legislature, legislature at this point. But when the invasion and occupation of Iraq was going on, he started his own rally. He started his own vigil. It was a candlelight vigil on the side of a busy road that was a peace vigil. And it started out just him. 
and then other people started standing next to it. And eventually it became Washington County, the county adjacent to Portland, its biggest peace vigil. Because this guy who was a retired bus driver just started standing in the road and talking to friends and calling in to talk radio and saying, hey, we got to stand for peace. People like you, Gabriella, people who will stand up for democracy, that's what democracy takes. Thanks for standing. We'll be back. Tom Hartman here. My new book, The War on Voting, it should be titled The Republican War on Voting, which is what it really is, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is on the verge of being out or is out in bookstores near you and online. It is the third in the series, the Hidden History series. The first was Guns in the Second Amendment. The second was the Supreme Court, the Betrayal of America. We're doing a book tour on the voting book here. Saturday, February 15th, I'll be in Los Angeles at the Sportsman's Lodge at 1 p.m. More information at kpfk.org. On Monday, February 17th in San Francisco, or in Berkeley, actually, at the Arts and Letters series at 7.30 p.m. On Wednesday, February 19th, I'll be in Seattle at Town Hall, 7.30 p.m. Sunday, February 23rd in Minneapolis, the Blue State Ball at 1 p.m. Friday, the 28th of February in Portland at Powell's on Burnside, and Sunday in Chicago, on March 1st. You can check it all out at TomHartman.com. All the information is there. It's a big, big week. Sunday was the Super Bowl. Monday was the Iowa caucus. Tuesday was the State of the Union address. Wednesday was the impeachment vote. Friday, the Democratic debate in New Hampshire. And today, in alignment with all of those things of similar magnitude as the Tom Hartman program with Jefferson Smith. Thanks for being here, and thanks for your gratitude. Let's go to Mark from Gainesville, Florida. Go ahead, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to point out that I believe our nature is bliss and that gratitude is the opposite coin to kindness. It's what gets us there, man. It is like I find myself. I've said this before, Mark, but that that I I don't I attempt not to hold myself out. In fact, I try to be pretty clear. It's not that I'm that good a person, but what makes me a better person when I'm better is being surrounded by people who are also trying to be better. And doing this is partly for me, to be clear, to remind me, for each of us to remind ourselves, not only to be angry, but also to be grateful. Amen to you. And it helps us be kinder. And kindness can start a positive spiral rather than otherwise. Claudia, you've been waiting for a while from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thanks for doing that. I just wanted to tell you that I appreciate you bringing to the forefront that we should be very, very concerned about our senators that we are elected. Yeah. We have got to do something about that Senate. He, the Senate is worse than, than the president, really. Yep. The, the president knows nothing. He's taking advice from these senators who don't give a darn about the rest of us in this country. Yeah, no senator is as famous as a president, so it doesn't receive as much attention. You can say the same thing about the U.S. House, and that, of course, vastly a bigger deal when you're talking about state legislatures. But if you look what makes decisions, if it weren't for the U.S. Senate, we would have a different Supreme Court right now. That wasn't just because we had a Democratic president and couldn't get the appointment approved of a pro-democracy Supreme Court, a moderate pro-democracy 
Supreme Court justice. If you look at your state legislatures, where do you think education funding happens? If you think that education's a big answer to wealth disparities, to real opportunity, where do you think those decisions are made? Occasionally, presidents somewhat frequently like to run an education, create some program. What that does is send a, you know, a little bit of money, relatively speaking, to states to support where education actually happens, which is in states. That happens at the state level. If you're thinking about where's your best chance to pass real campaign finance reform, do something like now New York City is doing, do something like Seattle has started doing, do something that the city of Portland is starting to do with different programs, but either a voucher system for elections or a six-to-one match. So small donor elections don't just happen from a major Amazing fame and happenstance and maybe some robotic help for a famous presidential candidate, but can happen for somebody who's getting their start, somebody who has built a network, not of huge wealth, but a network of friends of the good to make the world better. Those kind of people can win in that kind of system. That doesn't happen because of a president. That happens down ballot. I like to think the best way you can elect a better president is to work from the bottom of the ticket up. Work, and then you have reverse coattails. Somebody shows up to vote for a U.S. senator, you guarantee that they're going to also vote in the presidential race. Somebody shows up to vote for a state legislative candidate, it's not they're going to leave off the top of the ballot and not vote for president. Reverse coattails. Let's get to April from Portland, Oregon. Hey, Portland, Oregon, I've been there too. Hey, that's me. Hello. I love listening to your show. So I am thankful for the bus project and I definitely um, lobbied with them and thank you for being part of that. But um, I'm also very thankful for progressive and informed journalism. And there's this article that I found about this notion of the, I'm not going to say the word, it's the S-Life syndrome. Have you heard of it? I did. I read the article. The reason I didn't talk about it, April, the reason I didn't talk about it was because I wasn't smart enough just to say S-Life. The rest of the word is not FCC appropriate, but it's really important. It's about how stuff sucks and stuff sucks. And so people say, ah, stuff sucks. I guess I'll vote for the jerk. But say more, April. So what another thing that I'm thankful for is this opportunity that the Democrats have if they listen to these journalists. Bruce Levine is the one that wrote the article I read and and focus in communities like Ohio, where they're being devastated by opioids and suicide and, you know, meaningless life because they have drudge jobs that don't pay. They focus on how these people voted for Trump last time around because he offered something totally obnoxious outside of the norm. But has he delivered? No, he has not delivered. Hillary's not in jail, right? Mexico didn't pay for any wall, right? Their suicide rates are going up. They don't have good jobs. Manufacturing's gone. Just pummel the airwaves with those negative campaign messages so that they'll at least stay home. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they don't yep. have a candidate that they want to vote for, yep. they know they don't want to vote for Trump again because he has let them down. Yep. It's a real big one, and thank you for bringing it up. It's the mm-hmm. S, life. The other letters are H-I-T. I think I can say that. And it's a important article, Bruce Levine. I encourage everybody to read it. And thank you, April, for yeah. getting on the thank bus. So and thanks for, yeah, thanks for calling. Marsha from Winter Park, Florida. There was a guy that just called in. He was from Gainesville. I'm glad all Floridians are not wackadoodle Florida men. You know? <laughs> There's at least, like, at least two people that I don't see in my social media feed doing wacky several, stuff. There's several of us. There's more. <laughs> There's more. And so that, I was glad to hear from somebody from Florida. Bo of the Fifth Oh, We're going to break. Say your gratitude. I call too quick. I don't... Am say, I done now? Say your gra- gratitude quickly, Marsha. I'm grateful that now we don't have to feel guilty about anything we ever did. <laughs> ever. <laughs> 
<laughs> Somebody has set a low standard for all of our behavior. The Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Walking Your Blues Away, How to Heal the Mind and Create Emotional Well-Being from Chapter 1, How Trauma Sticks and the Mechanism of PTSD. One of the enduring mysteries in the field of psychology is why the same event produces such different memories and responses in different people. Citing a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, the writer noted the researchers surveyed more than 6,000 soldiers in the month before and after service in Iraq and Afghanistan, almost 17% of those who fought in Iraq reported symptoms of major depression, severe anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, compared with 11% of the troops who served in Afghanistan. In World War II, post-war depression and anxiety was called battle fatigue. In World War I, we called it shell shock. The question isn't so much why it happens. We know GIs in war do and see horrific things. The question that perplexes us is why post-war anxiety and depression haunts some veterans and not others. Of course, some vets see harder combat than others, but even that doesn't account for the statistics. There are still huge variations among individual soldiers in how they respond to the same event. The same is true in the civilian world. Some people develop PTSD and others don't, facing the exact same circumstances. In order to understand why some people are still shocked months and even years after a traumatic event, it's necessary to first understand how the brain and mind processes trauma. The brain is a complex collection of deeply interconnected parts and processes. I'm vastly oversimplifying here for the purpose of description. And in light of those caveats, here's a possible scenario that's not inconsistent with much of what's known about brain function. There's a part of the limbic brain or visceral brain called the hippocampus that's believed to function as a one-day scratch pad for memory. Everything you experience throughout the day is stored in the hippocampus. In order for the impressions of the experience to become a long-term memory, they must pass through the hippocampus into the rest of the brain. People with a damaged hippocampus remember past events but have extreme difficulty learning new things. Although the rest of the brain is able to integrate recent information from the hippocampus in relation to stored memories, in order to understand that one thing happened a week ago and another thing happened a month ago, the hippocampus knows only one time, today. During the night as we sleep, the hippocampus dumps its information from the day into the rest of the brain for processing, sorting, storing, and disposing of irrelevant information. As the brain is processing the details of the day from the hippocampus, we experience what we call dreaming. Many sleep researchers are convinced that when we experience REM sleep, most of the events, including the traumas of our daily life, are processed. The processing of information management completed when we wake up in the morning, the hippocampus is once again empty and ready to record another day. The problem emerges when the hippocampus is carrying information that's too much or too hot for the larger brain slash mind to handle. When a recent memory is too strong to be easily and unremarkably processed, it presents in our dream world as a nightmare. If that still doesn't download the information from the hippocampus, then the trauma either becomes buried in the subconscious, a process Freud referred to as repression, or it gets thrown back into the hippocampus the next morning. It's as if the brain says, whoa, that's too much for me to process in one evening. Please hang on to it for another day. When the person wakes up in the morning, the information is still there in the hippocampus, still remembered and known and felt as if it happened that same very day. The conjecture that the hippocampus knows little about the more distant past accounts for the unique feature of true PTSD that the person feels every day as if the past event happened today, or at least in the very recent past. The trauma is always front, center, new, fresh, and raw. The consequences can be psychologically and emotionally devastating. Every day is affected by a past event. The traumatic event never passes from now until then, 
and is never processed and filed away in the memory banks where it loses the power to cause pain and problems on a daily basis. The impact of this on the mind and the emotions is staggering. Brain scans even demonstrate that before a PTSD event has been processed, the amygdala, a part of the brain responsible for strong emotional states, such as those involved with survival or the perception of a threat to survival, and the hippocampus are not functioning normally. The brain scan makes it possible to, in a way, see the effect of the stuck memory. After processing the memory, these parts of the brain usually return to normal functioning. One of the key concepts of many schools of psychology is that human beings are most functional when every part of the mind has access to all other parts. In particular, this functionality is a matter of having full access to positive resources, such as memories of times when we were successful in our undertakings and the good feelings we associate with those accomplishments. Working from this level of functionality then, when we take on a new task, for example, we first remember times in the past when we attempted something similar and accomplished our goals. This functionality can be accessed in all endeavors, from embarking on a new love relationship to making your first public speaking engagement. Memories of past accomplishments and capabilities are stored in parts of the brain far from the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala and hippocampus, part of our brain's most primary and primitive structures, lie deep in the brain. Thus, having a negative memory stuck deep in the hippocampus blocks the pain and fear associated with that memory from reaching and associating with positive memories and resource states, which are housed in more distant parts of the brain. So in other words, if we don't get these traumatic memories out of the hippocampus, then everything coming in gets filtered through that and blocked having access to resource states that can help and heal us. So the rest of the book is how to get that stuff out of the hippocampus. The book is Walking Your Blues Away. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. We've got Lee Fung. I think he's with The Intercept. Friend of Tom's, friend of the show, investigative journalist who's been looking at what's been going on in Iowa. Tom Perez has called for Iowa to re-canvas the caucus votes. Mr. Fung, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? I am well. Thanks for being here. What have we learned? What's the most important thing you think we've learned from Iowa, other than maybe we want to change up the first state that votes in a presidential primary? I think we need the United Nations to step in and send election observers to the United States. You know, we spent the last couple of decades dictating to the rest of the world and lecturing the rest of the world about conducting fair and open and transparent elections. I think people pointed out the problems a little bit tongue-in-cheek Monday night with the Iowa caucus, laughing at the the slow process of tabulating the votes. But as it's gone on, it's been an absolute catastrophe for democracy. I don't see how anyone can truly trust or at least respect the process here when you have an app that was developed and rushed out the door in a small period of months that had vulnerabilities and issues with it that was deployed to election caucus leaders without training. They didn't know how to use it. They didn't know how to install it. They didn't know how to upload. And then the app itself did not work because of, um, you know, a programming error. They were transmitting the wrong results to the Iowa Democratic headquarters. Were you in Iowa for the caucus? No, I'm not. We've been reporting on this. Parts of our team at The Intercept have been there. They were at many of the caucus sites from San Francisco, just calling people on the ground 
we help break the story Got on it. the identity of the developer of that app, this consulting firm called yeah. Shadow. Is there a um, is there a it. is there a paper record of the vote? My what I've heard is that there is. What do we know about that? Yeah, there is. Well, look, um, the way the caucus has always been done is that there's a worksheet, and the caucus is conducted. The initial vote is recorded, and then um, based on the proportion of population in that given county in that caucus location there's kind of a little math sheet to divide the vote for those above the 15 percent threshold so there's there's several rounds of reshuffling until everyone is above that 15 percent to award those delegates it's a simple math sheet and you know we've got those pieces of paper but two problems have happened this week one the app didn't work (laughs) so we've had trouble a lot of trouble communicating the results and tabulating the results. And number two, we've seen many, many cases, and this is now reported by the New York Times, that the people with the actual pieces of paper with the raw votes have been incorrectly doing the math. They've been subtracting delegates when they're not supposed to, adding delegates when they're not supposed to. Does this this suggest, Lee, what's happened now because of the app is uncovering problems that have probably been happening in the caucus for a long time with people trying to do the arithmetic and getting the arithmetic wrong, but they're not being a a secondary count to check it and some of the the changes to the process that were promoted by the Unified Commission that may have uncovered stuff that maybe has been going on for decades? Oh, (laughs) I think so. I mean, how many reporters... In past elections, whether this is the Republicans engaging in the caucus or Democrats engaging in the caucus going back decades, have actually taken a granular look at the worksheets that were used to tabulate yeah. the results at all the thousands of precincts. Do, do, do you think that they've always been accurate? <laughs> I, I, would, I would assume. Level I, mean, I know the number year. of times I do a number of math problems. You know, I check my own work, and if I don't, I've probably made some mistakes. We have a question from Susan in Oroville, who's been winning our Most Patient Listener Award today, who want, wanted to ask the question, what is a delegate in the caucus process, and what do they do? We're seeing this SDE, right, which I think is state delegate equivalent. Can you tell us what the delegates do? I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it, maybe it's obvious to some people, but it's, I think, also useful to know for some others. Oh, it's definitely not obvious. This process is very complicated. Yeah. That's a good question. So just generally speaking, for the entire country, the DNC has a system of delegates that, are, that go to the DNC at the convention this summer in Milwaukee. In caucus states like Iowa, the number of delegates are proportioned by congressional district, but underlying those congressional districts are what's known as SDE state delegate equivalents, and those are, are awarded on a proportional basis based on past electoral performance and population. So if you're living in Des Moines, in a highly populated area, your precinct might have more potential SDEs that can be won versus a very rural, you know, area where there's not been a lot of voting in the past because that's also a factor that's used. And there are less potential uh, SDEs to be won. And then those SDEs then go to a state convention that then choose the final pledge delegates that go to the convention. So it's a multi-step process. This yeah. is, as you mentioned, there was a unity commission effort. So this process is a little bit different than previous years. This is the first year the Iowa Democratic Party has released the raw vote the initial vote before the reshuffle and the awarding of the SDEs. So we're seeing multiple results this year, which is, I think, a positive reform because it reflects more of the uh, Democratic will here. What, what are the actual initial preferences of the candidates? 
So, you know, I, you know, there's there's a lot of due criticism of the Iowa Democratic Party and the DNC. But, you know, to be fair to them, I think this is a justified reform. At the same time, this has collapsed all throughout the week in terms yeah. of how we report it, how they're doing the long division to report these STDs. Merle from Seattle, Washington, wanted to call in and let us know, oh, Shucks, I've lost Lee. Can you get Lee back on the phone? Lee, if you could call back in. Sorry, we lost you. But I'll ask the question while they're getting you back on the phone. I wanted to make sure people knew that the DNC has called for a re-canvassing of the vote in Iowa. Watu, while they're still getting you back on the phone, calling from Frederick, Maryland, and the Iowa caucus debacle. Is it connected to the Cambridge analytical leak and other dirty tricks? Those are a couple of questions I want to ask you before we have to go to break, which is going to be the second. And it looks like we have you back. Hey, Lee, that was almost seamless. Go ahead. First, <laughs> answer that first question, if you would. I'm sorry, I missed the question. Oh, shucks. Well, just respond to now we know the Democratic National Committee is calling for a re-canvas of the votes. Does that mean actually getting all the paper ballots and counting the paper ballots as folks wanted to have happen in Florida? I believe that's the case. You know, given all the news about the bad tabulating of the votes, they're going to go back and audit those results. But there's a lot of questions about the timing. These results have been streaming in, and these were satellite precincts. These were precincts that were mostly workers who couldn't make it because, of, you know, the caucus only occurs for about an hour or two in the in the evening. These are factory workers who had to work in the evening who were given the opportunity to caucus in the morning so they could make it to work. And these people from reporting on the ground went heavily for Bernie Sanders. So there's a lot of folks who are supporters of Bernie that are saying, hey, wait, we reported out the results from all these other precincts, but for these pre- satellite precincts that appeared to be pro-Bernie, now they're suddenly stopping the reporting and calling for for not. So there's a lot of questions about this the kind of peculiar timing. Have you seen the NBC News report? Maybe it's reported by others as well. I saw it from ABC News. The clog the lines. Republican Internet trolls deliberately disrupting the Iowa caucus. I'm looking at the headline now. Disrupted the Iowa caucus hotline for reporting results. Basically, you had uh, rat effers, you had dirty tricksters calling in to the reporting lines to make sure that everybody else would have to wait longer and longer and add to the challenge here. Is that something you looked into? I have not. I've seen those reports. I haven't seen any evidence of it. I wouldn't be surprised, but look, there's been a lot of problems with this caucus. Well, Lee Funk, thank you so much for your work. Thanks so much. We had somebody call in earlier to say thank you to progressive journalists. That includes you, man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. This is Tom Hartman's show. I'm Jim Schinsmith. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is the Tom Hartman Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. 
You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is It Came From Something Awful, How a Toxic Troll Army Accidentally Memed Donald Trump Into Office by Dale Byrne. This is from the introduction. On a warm summer day some 13 years ago, I found myself in the frigid air of Baltimore's convention center attending Octacon, a gathering of otaku superfans of Japanese media, mainly anime and manga. I didn't particularly like anime. I felt I was a little too old for the event. I had attended a few times when I was in high school in the late 90s. Back then, it had been held in a set of hotel conference rooms darkened to play obscure animation taped off Japanese TV. But in recent years, the crowds had grown big enough to require the city's largest venue. And the event had evolved, too, into an elaborate festival where otherwise isolated suburban kids came to bond over their favorite TV shows. And he goes through a fairly lengthy description of the convention center and whatnot. And he says, for this reason, entering into the cool, safe bubble of Octacon, where adolescents attempted to commune with the comforting kids' fantasy on the other side of the screen, felt slightly unsettling to me, though I couldn't put my finger on why. And at a certain point, wandering the triangle-shaped halls lined with wooden ships trapped in bottles, handing out flyers for my webcomic to teens dressed as rubber monsters, things started to get weird. Not for me, then. I hardly knew what I was seeing then. But for all of us, now. Years later, I realized I had become an indifferent witness to a turning point in history, a vast secret hinge upon which world events would swing. What did I see? Well, more of the same, kids in costumes. At the front of one room, there was a 15-year-old boy with a sharp chin, golden locks, and a baseball cap going through a PowerPoint presentation that was a mixture of web statistics and lewd jokes mocking various types of cartoon pornography. Excuse me. These included many fan-drawn images of the boy himself, depicted as a curvaceous pink cartoon cat girl wearing white panties. As the increasingly silly Photoshop drawings slid by, the raucous crowd shouted words of encouragement, gearing up for the late-night techno dance party that would follow. Despite all the adulation, the boy seemed slightly ill at ease. The cap was slung a little too low, as if to disguise his eyes, and he let his friends at the table do most of the talking. This was one of the first meetings of the now infamous online message board, 4chan.org. The boy in the cap was the site's founder, Christopher Moot Pohl. In October 2003, bored and in need of porno, he had programmed 4chan on a whim to trade pictures of anime girls with his friends, but soon discovered thousands and eventually millions of other people wanted to use it. It seems ridiculous to say the site was important, but even more ridiculous is the importance is already documented in the history books. In Alt-America, David Neewert wrote that the Nazi-worshipping alt-right began with 4chan, where people were talking online about Japanese anime. Few of these books, including Neewert's, offer an explanation for how this could have possibly happened. How we got from anime otaku to the anime Nazis of 2016 and onward. How all of this resulted in internet weirdos marching with tiki torches and similar fantasy-themed costumes in Charlottesville in 2017. Of course, the kids in that room weren't Nazis. Far from it. The last thing they wanted to do was discuss politics. And at that moment, I certainly didn't feel as though I was present for some great turning point in history. 
In fact, it seemed like I was confronting yet another moment of anti-history as the vast landscape of the American suburban nowhere land was imported into the convention center, a place that, in its expanse of smooth, clean carpeting, model ships, and big tumbling geometric shapes, felt a little like an infinite kid's rec room. The teens weren't trying to make a mark in the world. They were trying to escape from it by pantomiming discarded scraps of fiction. However, looking back, it all reads like some crazy premonition. As the microphone was passed from rubber dinosaur to trench coat mafia kid to see which to ask their curly-headed leader questions, the teens slash monsters kept debating and joking about things called memes and trolls. In the mid-2000s, these terms were meaningless to anyone outside the room. But later they broke out of that room and saturated every inch of the world. And strangers still, from 2016 onward, memes and trolls became central concepts that obsessed political commentators. Almost overnight, the terms invaded the domain of world leaders and redefined the contest between them. Now there are Russian trolls, Facebook trolls, and of course, the original 4chan trolls, all jiggling through the ether. Back then, I was surprised to find that I knew what these terms meant. Before I encountered 4chan at Octacon, the site constantly popped up in my webcomics referral logs, the data that shows where people came from when they visit your site. When 4chan began, it wasn't all that different from other online message boards. It was a place to post content and talk to people on the internet. At the time, it imported a few innovations from Japanese sites, which accounted for some of its popularity. It was easy to post images. And following a Japanese custom, it didn't require the user to sign up for an account. Anyone could post under a default name which eventually became the name of all 4chan users, Anonymous. But this hardly explained why it ballooned so rapidly, why almost as soon as it appeared, people began gathering to celebrate it. The book, It Came From Something Awful by Dale Byrne. Jay from Austin, go ahead. Oh, hey, I'm glad you got to me. Because, listen, according to a law that was written in 1927, I'll tell you the law is the RICO Act. And according to that law, any enterprise or organization that gets together for influencing the rule of law yep. is guilty of that. And I would think that every Republican senator that stormed the House, that was their first act of trying to stop the impeachment. And every Republican senator that said they were voting against impeachment and then voted against impeachment is guilty of the RICO Act. And what I will suggest, without even going that broadly, the list of names that Lev Parnas listed in paragraph three of his statement, I'm uh, pretty sure it was paragraph three, the, that included Lindsey Graham, et cetera, the people who were in cahoots in the plan, uh, a RICO investigation, if this Department of Justice allowed indictments, would be an interesting question. Larry letting us know that Trump was uh, bragging about being acquitted. Larry, did you watch the speech? I didn't. Well, I tried to, but it was getting pretty sickening, and I had to turn it off. He was going after Pelosi and Schumer and everything. I'll call them. They were nasty, uh, vicious people. And everything he was saying was virtually a lie. Yeah. And, you know, I tell you, my uncle fought in World War II with Patton, and he was on that raid to get his son-in-law out of prison. He got captured beaten and damn near died. And this guy is a President Bonespurs. I'm just sick of him. He 
puts Medal of Honors around our servicemen, and this guy is a gaff and bone-spurred idiot, you know? Appreciate it, Larry. Watsu, your turn from Frederick, Maryland. Yes, thanks for taking my call, Jeff. I'm making this call. I had just completed reading, just completed reading a book called Targeted yeah. by Brittany Kaiser, who was a whistleblower involved in the uh, Cambridge Analytical from a couple of years ago. Yep. And upon reading that, the, the whole Iowa caucus elections uh, arose, and and uh, I just kind of got to thinking. I said, well, is there any possibility of any, any uh, data tampering going on? Uh, yeah, I, it's a good it's a good question, man. I and I appreciate the call and thanks for listening. I am hopeful, and one thing I would caution us, and I think one of the reasons the NBC News story is important is that is letting folks know about the flooding of calls by Republican trolls, by anti-democracy, uh, dirty tricksters, and and put this in context, right? I mean, that's how much of this started. During the candidacy, during the committee to reelect the president, during the reelect candidacy of Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon's Southern strategy was not just a Southern strategy, it was a trolling strategy. And that started strengthening the culture within the right wing of doing the kind of stuff they've been doing over the last 40 or 50 years, which includes things like flooding phone lines to make Iowa look dumber in the context of the very first caucus. I would look to that stuff prior to looking at Cambridge Analytica, but it also suggests I wouldn't go past anything. That's why a paper record is important, and I look forward to seeing the paper record results. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. In the context of so many things that justify frustration, anger, fear, and sadness and regret... What's good stuff that we should be calling out to inspire folks? What are accomplishments that somebody is doing? Something that recently was passed. Rob Harris wanted to say thank you to the growing election reform movement, shouting out Honest Elections and Fair Vote and a bunch of other nonprofit organizations, League of Women Voters, other academics. What are you grateful for? What is pro-democracy progress that is being made or was made at some other time previous that we should be calling out and remembering? Britt. Eureka, California, what are you grateful for? Hey, Jefferson, thanks for having me on. I am grateful, and I really never thought I'd say these words, but I'm grateful for Mitt Romney. Yep. Because uh, he really had, I think, an incredibly meaningful vote. And not only that, but he had a really meaningful and, I think, well-thought-out speech that he gave in front of the Senate, too, or, or at least that interview that he gave. If one person can stand up and make send a message like that and stand up against it, I, I think it gives us uh, lights a, even more of a fire in our bellies. And it that's does, what I'm it, grateful it for. It does feel like it changes it, right? I know it didn't change the result of the vote, but it does feel like it impacted the moral weight of what happened, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tremor through the Republican Party. There's no question about it. And I think it gives a lot of Republican moderates, people that don't inherently like Trump at all, it gives them a real reason and a person to stand behind. And I think that if we can get people who are borderline Trump people and get them back towards the, the Democratic Party and really get behind the nominee, which is another important part of this whole equation, I think we can knock this, this guy out. And I'm hoping we can do it in November. Well, Brett, thanks. And thanks for listening to KGOE in Eureka, California. I think Bruce wants to pile on from Columbus, Ohio. Bruce, go ahead. 
Well, I am, A, very proud of Mitt Romney for his vote, very grateful for his explanation, which I think was more powerful than the vote, because it was a strong rebuke to the Republican Party and the president and specific members of the Republican Party, like Lamar Alexander, Bukowski, and Collins. So I'm very proud of him. I'm quite grateful for what he did. He's totally changed the tone, and he's given Democrats a lot of ambition. In addition, I have a question for you. What do you think of completely eliminating caucuses and primaries, letting anybody who wants to run for a Democratic office run, and then just do ranked choice voting at the election? I'd be curious about your opinion, and I'll go ahead and hang up and let you talk about it. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. And this also connects to a text we got in. This was from Martin Stender. He said, I would like to hear your take on my theory, which is the main problem with U.S. politics is the two-party system. I'm Danish. In our last election, we could choose between 13 parties. They then have to compromise. This is a little bit different than Bruce's question, but it does bring up the question, either multi-party system or ranked choice voting. I'll start with ranked choice voting. I am not prepared to throw out any alternative weird way to cast ballots. I made the case before for how the cutting edge of interview systems worked, which is you use multiple processes to evaluate people because different processes have different biases. And if you can use different processes, then, you know, you can sort of balance out the biases. So I like that there's different. I like that we have, you know, a couple small states. I like I even think the caucus system is fascinating. I don't know that I'd have it be first. I don't know that it had to be a binding vote. I don't know if I'd have Iowa be first. But what I will endorse alongside you is, particularly in primaries, moving to a ranked choice voting system or a shout out to Sarah Wolk, who uh, tweeted in the about star voting, which is essentially zero is you don't want the person at all. Five is you want them a lot. You know, one, two, three, four in between. And then it, it's, it's a somewhat mathematically better system and maybe a little bit easier to administer because I can't remember. Do I who's my fourth and fifth? Oh, who's my sixth? But I can remember, oh, do I really like or really not like this candidate? And then add it up a little simpler, a little better. That kind of system for primaries, I think, makes a ton of sense. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So imagine Valentine's Day is upon you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. You look in the mirror and, uh uh-oh, wrinkles and large under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, i got to have a secret weapon, and there it is, Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes, and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing right in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com. Now, moving to Martin's question, do I think that the biggest problem, the main problem, as he said, with U.S. politics is the two-party system, and then he makes a plug for a multi-party system? I don't think it's the main problem. I think the main problem with U.S. politics is oligarchic-funded white supremacy and sexism 
crushing the environment and crushing the middle class. That's what I think the biggest problem is with U.S. politics. And I don't think that is merely because of the process by which we elect a president or members of Congress. I see what just happened with Brexit. I see what the United Kingdom has been dealing with. I see what's been happening in Israel. And I don't think any that have significantly different systems. And I don't think that the system is necessarily the fix. That said, I do think we got to shake it up. I've been making the case for what most people say down ballot races, but local first, focusing on what you can do in the next town over, not just in seven states over, not just focused on what you can direct your pea shooter at in the presidential campaign, but where you can have an impact in your local community. And doing ranked choice voting, doing star voting in your town elections, in your city, that's something you could get done. If you got a group of a dozen people together, you could and put together a committee, you could potentially get that done, particularly if you have some fluffy hearted members of your city council or your county commission. That is something you could actually get done. And just like with women's suffrage, doing that county by county, city by city, eventually state by state, then that can become a cascading force that impacts how we elect people in the country. But let's make no mistake, just as I say that the Democratic Party isn't the primary challenge, a, a weak need Democratic Party even is not the primary challenge in the country, nor is, even though I think we might need a stronger need Democratic Party in the country, nor do I think, and a, and a more virtuous Republican Party, I also don't think the biggest problem in the country is our voting system, because I see what happens in other countries. Martin said, well, it makes it more stable. Benjamin Netanyahu, tons and tons and tons and tons of parties, they've had a hard time forming their government. We've got to have a supermajority that is pro-democracy. That is the answer. That probably means other systems. I now think we will need lots of other systems to embrace and experiment with other systems. But we need a supermajority that is pro-democracy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Mind uh, Blank, Cambridge Analytica and the Plot to Break America by Christopher Wiley. My life now looks, this is from the uh, Revelations chapter next to the last chapter. My life now looks like that of a paranoid man, but after being assaulted in the street, receiving threats from rogue private security firms, having my hotel room broken into late at night as I was sleeping, and experiencing two hacking attempts on my email in the past 12 months, it's only sensible to be cautious. When I had my flat checked for security risks, the TV was deemed a risk, as it could be used to watch or listen to me without my ever knowing. As we dismantled it, I smiled at the irony of a TV that watches you. In the days leading up to the story's publication, when Facebook began sending me legal threats and escalated my case up to its deputy general counsel and vice president, my lawyers realized that the company saw my whistleblowing as a major threat to its business. Having experience on other hacking cases, my lawyers knew what companies backed into a corner were willing to do. But Facebook was different. They did not need to hack me. They could simply track me everywhere because of the apps on my phone, where I was, who my contacts were, who I was meeting. I disposed of my phone, and my lawyers bought new clean phones that have never touched Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp. The terms and conditions of Facebook's mobile app ask for microphone and camera access. Although the company is at pains to deny pulling user audio data for targeted advertising, there is nonetheless a technical permission sitting on our phones that allows access to audio capabilities. And I was not an average user. I was the company's biggest reputational threat at the time. At least in theory, audio could be activated, and my lawyers were concerned that the company could listen in on my conversations with them or with the police. Facebook already had access to my photos and my camera, which put them in a position to not just listen to me, but also to see where I was. 
Even if I was alone in the bathroom taking a shower, I wasn't ever really alone. If my phone was there, so was Facebook. There was no escape. But getting rid of my phone wasn't going to be enough. My mom, dad, and sisters all had to remove Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp from their phones for the same reason. But Facebook also knew who all my friends were. They knew where they liked to go out, what we wrote about in messages, and they knew where we all lived. Even hanging out with my friends became a risk as Facebook had access to their phones. If a friend took a photo, Facebook could access it. And in facial recognition, recognition algorithms could, at least in theory, detect my face in the photos sitting on other people's phones, even if they were strangers to me. As I was getting rid of my old electronics, my friends joked that it was as if I was exorcising the demons inside the machines. And one friend even brought over some sage to burn, just in case. A funny gesture, of course, but in a way it really was an exorcism. We now live in a world where there are invisible spirits made of code and data that have the power to watch us, listen to us, and think about us. And I wanted these specters gone from my life. On March 16, 2018, a day before The Guardian and The New York Times published my story, Facebook announced that it was banning me, not only from Facebook, but also Instagram. Facebook had refused to ban white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and other armies of hate, but it had chosen to ban me. The company demanded that I hand over my phone and personal computer and said that the only way for me to be reinstated was, in effect, to give them the same information I was providing the authorities. Facebook behaved as if it were a nation state rather than a company. The firm did not seem to understand that I was not the subject of investigation. They were. My lawyers advised me to refuse their demands so as not to interfere with a lawful police and regulatory investigation. Later, when I was working with the authorities, the ban made it far more difficult to hand over evidence that was sitting in my Facebook account, and the investigation into what happened during the Brexit referendum suffered as a result. They say you appreciate something only when it's gone, and it was only when I was erased from Facebook that I truly realized how frequently my life touched their platform. Several of my phone's apps stopped working, a dating app, a taxi app, a messaging app, because they used Facebook authentication. Subscriptions and accounts I had on websites failed for the same reason. People often talk about a dualism, the, cy the cyber world and our real lives. But after having most of my digital identity confiscated, I can tell you that they are not separate. When you are erased from social media, you lose touch with people. I stopped getting invited to parties, not intentionally, but because those invites also happened on Facebook or were posted on Instagram. Friends who did not have my new phone number found it nearly impossible to get a hold of me, except for trying to send an email to my lawyers. When I got through the thick of the whistleblowing, it would only be in coincidental encounters at clubs or bars that I would make contact with people I had not seen in months. And now when guys on dating apps ask to check out my Instagram profile, it starts an awkward explanation of how I was banned and that I'm not catfishing, I promise. It's as if my identity has been confiscated and people no longer believe I am who I say I am. Sometimes I get recognized as that guy and people worry that someone might start watching them if they decide to meet me. I always tell them that they needn't worry because these companies are already tracking them 24-7. This ban was nothing more than a dick move by Facebook and it felt like trolling by frightened bullies. For me, it created at most an annoying personal hassle and was not nearly as consequential to my life as the kinds of retaliation that other whistleblowers have experienced, not to mention the degree of damage to modern society that the, pro that the platform has already aided and abetted. But it showed me just how integral my online identity had become to, to so many facets of my life. 
the book by Christopher Wiley. I want to say thanks so much to all of our listeners. It is such an honor to do this. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. Without you, democracy doesn't have that much of a chance. With you, we got a chance. You are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Thanks, everybody. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com.